0: This morning we're going to dive right in, so one more time, take your Bibles, open them to Matthew chapter 12. And say it one more time because we're going to finish up this chapter this morning. Going through Matthew's gospel, verse by verse, means we are in store for some monumental teaching from the Lord. From the Sermon on the Mount to the Olivet Discourse, Matthew gives us some of the best teachings of the Lord. And another one of those great messages is right around the corner in Matthew 13 where we get the greatest collection of parables from the Lord. From the parable of the sower to the wheat and the tares, the Lord's going to reveal some, some big truths about the kingdom pretty soon. The thing is about those parables, they can seem a bit convoluted and confusing, especially to those who are not familiar with the Bible. The spiritual truths Jesus is trying to communicate is not readily obvious in these parables, but that is actually the whole point. Jesus started speaking in parables so that he might reveal big truth to his disciples while at the same time conceal that truth from the people. Why would Jesus ever want to conceal truth from the people? I thought he came to give the truth. He did, but you see the people have already at this point rejected that truth. They've rejected him, and we're going to see Jesus start to reject them. The light is being taken away from them because they have rejected it. And so it's not a coincidence that Jesus begins to teach in parables in Matthew 13 right after Matthew 12, the theme of Matthew 12 being rejection. Matthew 12, we've found the religious leaders have reached their peak hardness of heart against him. They've blasphemed the spirit and accused him of, of working by the power of the devil. But we've also found that the people are rejecting Jesus as well. They're not vehemently denying him like the leaders, but they remain neutral and uncommitted to Jesus. But to him, effectively, that's the same as rejection. As he said in Matthew 12, verse 30, he who is not with me is against me. If you stop short of recognizing the divine authority of Christ and following him as Lord, you're not with him. You're still going your own way, always except his way lead to judgment. That, that's a problem. These people are impressed with Jesus. And on the surface, they're favorable to him, but it's not like they're ready to deny self, pick up their crosses, and actually follow him. And they're still lost. This explains why Jesus will soon start speaking to them in parables. By way of preview, Matthew 13, 13, Jesus says, Therefore I speak to them in parables, because while seeing, they do not see. And while hearing, they do not hear, nor do they understand. Now, before we get there, Jesus has a few more strong words for the generation before him at the end of Matthew 12, where not just the leaders, but the people have failed to apprehend the countless signs of Jesus and follow him. So he tells them that they're only getting one more sign from heaven, the sign of Jonah, the prophet, which we learned last time, speaks of his own resurrection. Christ rising from the dead will be the sign of all signs that he really is the Christ and the Son of God. And if you reject that sign, there's no hope for you. Now, we got into this paragraph last week where Jesus is warning the people, verses 38 through 45. Now, last week, we had the Lord's Supper, baptism, so we had to cut the message short. We didn't get to include verses 43 through 45, which conclude those thoughts. That will be our first order of business. In fact, let's read that passage now, Matthew 12, 43 through 45. Finishing talking to the people, he says, Now when the unclean spirit goes out of a man, it passes through waterless places, seeking rest, and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds it unoccupied, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and takes along with it seven other spirits, more wicked than itself. And they go in and live there. And the last state of that man becomes worse than the first that is the way it will also be with this evil generation. Now you can see why context matters so much in Bible study. Because just taken out of context, this passage seems out of left field. It's bizarre. We're, we're just teaching on wandering demons. We are left wondering, like, what, what is going on here? What, what does this even mean? And on the surface, you would think he's teaching us something about demons, but he's actually not. This passage is not about demons. In context, Jesus is merely using the world of demons to teach us something else. And what is his real subject? You caught it at the end of verse 45. It's found in his punchline. That is the way it will also be with this evil generation. He started this paragraph speaking about this evil generation back verse 39. An evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign. And now he's, he's bookending. He's finishing this thought, still talking about the evil generation. Verses 43 through 45 here fit the flow of thought of Jesus reprimanding this evil generation. Against the backdrop of demons, he's saying something about the unbelief of the people. And we still wonder, what, what is his message? What does he mean? How does it apply to us? That will be our first order of business to figure that out. After that, though, we are going to include verses 46 through 50. Let's read that now to finish this chapter. Verse 46, he says, While he was still speaking to the crowds, behold, his mother and brothers were standing outside seeking to speak to him. Someone said to him, Behold, your mother and your brothers are standing outside seeking to speak to you. But Jesus answered the one who was telling him and said, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, behold, my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father who is in heaven, he is my mother, brother and sister and mother. Now this is a, a new little unit of thought. So that this might feel like two sermons in one this morning, but you can see how Jesus, he's still making some point to the crowds. He still has a message for this evil generation. It's a message on what it takes, what it truly means to be in the family of God. So look, it's very interesting against two very different backdrops, one of demons, one of family, but through both, by way of contrast, Jesus is showing us what it means to be his disciple, what it takes to follow him. How do you find the way of the Lord unto salvation? These two last passages show us so what we're going to do is behold these, these two messages coming from these two pictures that reveal something about the nature of true salvation. Two messages from two pictures on the nature of true salvation. We'll, we'll see it unfold. They both come in the negative at, by way of contrast. We'll, we'll fill in the positive. What are these, these last two messages of this chapter? The first you could say, you could say it like this. Number one, reform is not enough. Reform is not enough. Back to verses 43 through 45. And first, we just got to make sense of what he is saying here. What is all this business about demons leaving a person, wandering around, coming back again? This passage seems very similar to a parable, as we will find. Parables are these true-to-life stories that are meant to reveal some spiritual truth. But first, we just got to grasp this backdrop. So verse 43. Verse 43. He says, now when the unclean spirit goes out of a man, it it passes through waterless places seeking rest, does not find it. Now on the surface, Jesus is saying something about unclean spirits. We're talking about demons, another phrase for them, evil spirits. We don't know that much about the unseen world of angels and demons, but we want to know as much as the Bible reveals, because we, especially in the Gospels, we see the Lord Jesus interact With demons quite often. Who exactly are these demonic beings? What do they do? How powerful are they? What can they do to afflict believers? And so on, questions abound. Now, we're not going to stop and answer these questions now because we did that. In case you were gone throughout the month of January, we we just finished devoting like three messages to surveying what the Bible says about demons, and we did that for this very reason to enhance our understanding and appreciation of Matthew's gospel and the ministry of our Lord, so much of which comes in contrast to demons. So we're not going to redo all that here. But this one passage in Matthew is definitely unique. It definitely brings to the surface some unique issues about this unseen world. Verse 43, the unclean spirit goes out of a man. It had been in the man before. We certainly learned about the phenomena of demon possession in our study. Possession can be defined as a demon indwelling a person and exercising control or dominion, which cannot be resisted. And that's why deliverance is needed, which Jesus, we see him performing quite often. Now, in this case, though, Jesus gives us some insight into what takes place after a demon has left a person one way or another from the perspective of the demon. We don't get that anywhere else. This is unique. also strange the spirit is then described as passing through waterless places seeking rest we see first that this desire for rest seems to be pretty universal now these unclean spirits will never find any eternal rest but appear to be looking for whatever temporary respite they can find what is this business about waterless places it's it's not super clear it's talking about deserts, literally, but it's hard to press too much into it. Are we to believe that, that demons and evil spirits prefer all the places we loathe, like deserts and wastelands and wildernesses? This is just a brief, mysterious comment by Jesus with, with no other explanation. It's hard to, to take it too far. But it's, it's actually beside the point. The point comes in verse 44. Because one way or another, the demon goes out, seeks rest, doesn't find any, and decides to return. Verse 44, then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds it unoccupied, swept, and put in order. That's pretty interesting how this demon refers to this man as my house. It had total control over this person. Now it comes back to this person and, and finds what? Speaking of the man now metaphorically as a house, it finds it unoccupied, swept, and put in order. So what is this signifying? Start with the latter terms, swept, put in order. The obvious implication is that when this demon left the man, it was not swept and put in order. In other words, this man's life was a mess. It was in total disarray. The demon probably had a lot to do with that. I'm sure you've heard that squatting is a huge problem in Los Angeles. Just given the housing crisis, the lack of prosecution, you know, when a homeless person or homeless people find an empty house, there's nothing stopping them from just moving in, as if they own the place, and there's not much the police seem to be willing to do about it anymore. So last year, a $10 million Hollywood Hills mansion was taken over by squatters for quite a while. They just lived in there, now, in this case, because of reports of screams and violence, the police did go in and remove them. And how do you guess they found the house? <laughs> the mansion was just trash. It was littered with trash, broken glass, graffiti, human waste. I mean, it wasn't their home. Why should they care? They left a wake of destruction, and they'll probably do it again. And I kind of imagine that's how the demon left this man. He's kind of wrecked his life. And moved on. Demons seek to destroy the image of God in man through temptation or affliction. This demon just wrecked this man's life. Could have been through addiction or violence or immorality. Whatever it might be, this man's life was in chaos. But now you see the change. Because upon returning, the demon finds this man, this house, all clean and swept, put in order. And so I can, I'm sure you can see what this metaphor represents. After the demon left, this man's life was reformed. We, we say to get, today he got his act together. He, he cleaned up his act. His life was a complete mess, but a little later, and of course being freed from the influence of the evil spirit, he found moral reform. He broke his addictions. He shed his vices. <clears throat> We've all heard of, Stories of people who were at the bottom of the barrel. They were enslaved to sin and vice. But years later, they clean up. They changed their ways. They break free. We just took our kids this past week to the Monterey Bay Aquarium and went for lunch next door to Bubba Gump Shrimp Company and made me think of Lieutenant Dan. If you've seen the movie Forrest Gump, he's this character who lost both of his legs in Vietnam. And after that, he became this angry, belligerent, nasty, alcoholic, who hated everybody. But then after surviving a great storm at sea, Lieutenant Dan found peace, and the storm of his soul was calmed. He reformed. He changed his ways, cleaned up his act, got married. And that's great. We, we celebrate those types of stories. It's better than the alternative. But you know that just because a person cleans up their act That doesn't automatically mean they're right with God, right? You're not saved by reform. Because this person Jesus talks about is still missing something. Their life seems to be back in order, but do you see the problem? That they're still empty. The house is unoccupied. It's swept. It's in order, but it's unoccupied. Hence, when the demon returns, finds the man is reformed, but he's still unoccupied. And that leads to verse 45. It says, Then it goes and takes along with it seven other spirits, more wicked than itself, and they go in and live there. And the last state of that man becomes worse than the first. Now, since spiritual beings don't take up physical space, we've learned multiple demons can possess a person. And we also learned in our study that there's varying degrees of wickedness among the evil spirits, given over to Varying degrees of rebellion against God. Okay. But that just means for this man, both in quantity, because now there's seven more spirits, and in quality, it says they are more wicked than itself. This man is going to be enslaved more than ever. Now these eight total demons move in, take up residence. And although Jesus leaves it there, we're left to obviously infer the obvious. What do you think these eight demons are going to do to this house? Is he going to be better off or worse off? He'll be worse off than ever before. And thinking again of the problem of, of squatters, especially where I'm from, Los Angeles. Now, it is illegal, but California has stopped prosecuting it as a crime. And so a squatter might find a mansion, live in it like he's king of the castle, just trash the place, eventually get run out by the police. But he's going to be released. He'll be back at it in days. And so what's to stop him from just going back to the same house? Now just think, though, if he went back to that mansion and he found that a family moved in. They moved in, they cleaned it up, they locked the doors, he'd be turned away. But if he goes back to the same house and finds it is still unoccupied, there's nothing stopping him from just moving right back in. It's a better place. And why shouldn't he take his friends? They all move in there and the house will be more trashed than ever. And that's what's happening to this man, which is why Jesus says at the end that the last state becomes worse than the first. This man is now in for some real trouble. And that's it. Now, taken out of context, again, this is just a bewildering passage about demons, just these details we're not familiar with. Jesus gives us no indication he's speaking hypothetically as if this this can't happen or this, this, this doesn't happen. But like a parable, it's clear this is a true-to-life story about something else. He's making a spiritual point here. And as as fascinating as this passage is, it's, it's not about demons. Again, the real connection comes at the end, verse 45, where he says, That is the way it will also be with this generation. And so Jesus finishes connecting the dots, letting us know he's not actually talking about demonology He's making a point about this generation. And then becomes very clear that this man is meant to represent Israel. Or at least the present generation of Israel, typified by the crowds before him who he is talking to. Jesus started this paragraph saying something about this evil generation. Verse 39, he's still saying something about this evil generation, the people before him. And so if we are to follow this metaphor then, What was the former state of Israel like? Jesus is referring to a time when Israel was out of order. Their house was not swept. And really, that kind of describes their whole history after the Exodus. The Jews were, they actually were an idolatrous, immoral, unbelieving people. They didn't follow Yahweh. They went after Baal. They didn't keep God's law. They they disregarded it to the, the degree of, Sacrificing their own children. This is why God harshly disciplined them through the exile, through the destruction of the temple. And it was only after that, only after that Babylonian exile, as years went on, that Israel reformed. That that did truly humble them and, and they changed their ways. They cleaned up their act. The Jews put away their foreign gods once for all after that point. That's when they became fiercely monotheistic. Yahweh is the only God, no other gods. Okay, great. They also started keeping God's law. No more tolerance for immorality or adultery or sin. God's righteous standard must be upheld. Okay, great. The worship of God was also made a priority. Instead of violating the Sabbath, they dutifully kept it. Instead of neglecting the temple, they brought their sacrifices and offerings. Okay, great. Great. And so by the time of Christ, on the outside, Israel had been like totally reformed from their former days. They they were starting to look like the people of God, but moral and religious reform are not the same thing as regeneration. And so what is the problem? That these people, they experienced the type of reform, yes, but they were still empty. The house was unoccupied. They fully bought into all the external forms of worship and obedience, but they were totally devoid of the heart of worship. They did not worship God from the heart. They had merely substituted all these religious externals. They were empty of God's Spirit, and now they're empty of God's Messiah. I mean, here, Christ is before them. God had, had finally sent their Messiah, the one who could fill them with the Spirit. But they have proved... They, they wanted nothing to do with him. They did not receive him. They did not believe in him. They will not follow him. A little later, they will chant, crucify him. So are these people really better off? Has their reform really made them better? No, I mean, they're actually under a greater condemnation. Just like Jesus says in Luke 19.44, a great destruction is coming for these people. Why? Because they did not recognize the day of their visitation. Their worship was all facade. Was all this temple worship pure? No, it was meant to be a house of prayer. They turned it into a robber's den. It's just a place of commerce, Christ said. Was their Sabbath observance true? No, it just became this, this game of legalism and showmanship. Was their law keeping legit? Their obedience to the law no, Christ says all the time, they're merely hypocrites. They find all these loopholes. At the end of the day, they do what they want to do. In all, it's just as Jesus says of this generation later in Matthew 15, verse 7. He says of them, you hypocrites, rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. In vain do they worship me. And so truly, for Israel, the last state was worse than the first. I still might rub you the wrong way, like, but wait, I mean, come on, it's not like the Jews were still sacrificing their children to Molech, they they stopped doing that. They're not worshiping statues of Baal, they don't have any more temple prostitutes, which they used to have, and so they look clean and moral. So how could you say that state is worse than the former state? Speaking of demons here, do you think demons only seek to deceive and destroy people through vice? What better scheme is there to deceive people than through religion? What is more devious than to convince people they're right with God through self-righteousness? Does not Satan disguise himself as an angel of light? See this epitomized above all in the Pharisees? They were moral, upright devout. They kept the law. They kept the Sabbath. You put a Pharisee side by side with an ancient Israelite, they would despise them as an ungodly, unrighteous sinner. But were these Pharisees better off? They experienced great reform, yes, but not through repentance and faith, not through the Messiah, rather just through self. Theirs was a self-righteousness. They put all their confidence in the flesh, And it's by their achievement, by their merit, they were right with God, or so they thought. But that is actually not the right way, the way to be made right with God. This is why they actually were further from God and worse off. Salvation is only found by going through the narrow gate of faith in Christ. And it requires you humble yourself. You're broken over your sin and unworthiness. You're poor in spirit. And you just plead for mercy through the Savior who died and rose to pay for your sins and redeem you. But the self-righteous person is so deceived through their moralism, they they don't need a Savior. They don't need salvation. And truly, the last state is worse than the former. And a lot of people today still experience religious reform like this. Our our culture, we, we say of them, like, oh, that person found God or they found Jesus. Actually, in the movie, Lieutenant Dan, it said he found God. But, but did he really? Like he, he found God in the storm. But, but like this generation of Jews, the problem is that they actually still remain empty. They're empty of Christ. They're empty of His Spirit. They've put on some of the outer forms of worship, but their hearts are still far away from God. They've not sworn any allegiance to Him. They don't cling to Christ. They put confidence in in themselves, in the flesh, they're worse off. So what do we learn here from the Lord? What is needed for salvation? Reform is not enough. You need rebirth. Reform is not enough. You need regeneration. It's not enough to clean house. King Jesus needs to then come and live in the house. Otherwise, all the cleaning is in vain. All the ways you shape up your life, it's just like polishing the bronze in the Titanic. It's just, you're still headed for judgment. Salvation comes by gaining Christ. He is the one who then reforms you, reshapes you, and causes his spirit to dwell within you. And so it's just like Jesus said to one Pharisee who was on the right track, Nicodemus, when he told him, you must be born again. No one can even see the kingdom unless he is born again. This is a divine birth, a rebirth. It's a work of God where he makes us new, because it's true, we do need to change if we are to be with God, but the point is we are powerless to change, to be righteous. Our only hope for him to do that to us, for us, to transform us, to make us right and righteous, to forgive us. He does this according to his power and mercy. We don't control that power, but God has said he works in those who repent and believe. Just like Jesus said a little later to that same Nicodemus, John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. You are saved by faith. In fact, your faith itself is the proof you have been born again. But this faith is not just saying a few words. It's not adding a little Jesus or a little religion to your life Faith is a clinging to Christ as Lord and Savior in a desperation. It's a bowing the knee, dying to self, seeking him as master, all just out of love for the one who died for you. Too many people think of faith as adding Jesus into the orbit of their lives. They throw up Jesus, okay, now I've got Jesus, family, country, Jesus, he's now up there. He's in the orbit of my life. My life is better off because I've added some Jesus, some religion to my life. But that is not how it works. To be born again means your, your whole solar system is radically reoriented. Christ becomes the sun, the center as he should be. And then you and every aspect of your life revolves around him. Your marriage, your parenting, your money, your work, your vacation, your hobbies, everything revolves around him, meaning he's Lord over all. He's first in all. That's what faith looks like. You must be found in Christ. Christ must be found in you. Otherwise, you remain empty and it's, it's all in vain. You must occupy your house, your life. And keep in mind, believers here, who, those here who do believe in him, that this is true for salvation. This is still true for sanctification. How instructive this principle is for those who do believe, who do follow him. Just think a little deeper about the implications of Christ's teaching, because even as Christians, we know we are meant to continue to grow, that our lives do more reflect his character, we are to be Christ-like. But how are you doing that? Are you trying to grow according to the flesh? As Paul asks in Galatians chapter 3, having begun by the Spirit, are you seeking to be perfected by the flesh? May never be. Have you put your confidence in your flesh, that is in yourself, your power, your self-control, your ability to grow, to change, to be more like him. No, but now you must walk by the same spirit he made to dwell in you. And yeah, And You have a part to play, Philippians 2.12. You must labor and strive to work out your salvation. But Philippians 2.13, you can only do that by, by depending on his power that works within you. And so are you you trying to get over that vice? Are you trying to break that sinful habit? Are you trying to to stop and overcome that that lust or greed or control your tongue? I hope you are. But put no confidence in the flesh to change you, Philippians 3. Rather, you have to work and diligently labor according to his power that works mightily within you, Colossians 129. And so what does it actually look like in short? Have you thought about starting with prayer? Like how much time and passion do you spend praying for your own spiritual growth? Wrestling with God in prayer to just overcome that sin, to change. And then we say this often, but well, what else to say? Renew your mind with the scriptures. You need to feed your spirit the fuel the Holy Spirit uses to change you. So it's, Just like 1 Peter 2, verse 2 says, Like newborn babies, long for the pure milk of the word, so that by it you may grow with respect to salvation. Or like Zechariah 4, 6 says, Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. It's how we do all things. As Christians, we are filled with the spirit, but now we must walk by the spirit. We already experience any growth, any change in life. You can take these thoughts, you run with them much further, but already heed this message that the Lord delivered to that generation that we may not be the same. When it comes to finding the way of salvation, reform is not enough. You need rebirth. And you know you've found it when your life changes because you've put all of your confidence in Christ, not the flesh. And then come to daily depend on him, walk in his ways and a dependent faith. Now, we have to switch gears because there is a second message here coming from a second picture, but it also tells us about the way of the Lord. So, two for one, here's number two. A second message, proximity is not enough. Reform is not enough. Proximity is not enough. We'll explain that, but I wanted to include verses 46 through 50 just to finish up this chapter. It might feel like two sermons in one, but that said, We have a drastic change in backdrop, growing from demons to family. But we still glean from the Lord what it takes to follow him, what it looks like to follow him. And so we have here a second picture on the nature of salvation. We've learned reform is not enough to to draw you, to bring you to God. And secondly, proximity is not enough. These verses are much more straightforward. Let's, let's go through them now. Verse 46. It says, While he was still speaking to the crowds, behold, his mother and brothers were standing outside, seeking to speak to him. Matthew, in this whole chapter, he doesn't really bother with telling us the setting. Mark, in this parallel, gives us a little more, leads us to believe this is taking place in Galilee, in Capernaum, this house that they're in, most likely is Peter's house, which Jesus made his home base, relocating there. And Mark gives us a lot more background on what's going on here. On this day, Jesus and his disciples at some point enter this house, probably to rest, but it doesn't work. Just like a flash, a flash flood, this tsunami of people just rush into this house. They take up every square inch. The crowd still wants to hear from Jesus and see his wonders. And so there's no time for rest. Mark says they couldn't even eat a meal. Now, meanwhile, some of Christ's family members show up. They want to speak to him. They think he has gone mad. This is Mark 3.21, a little parallel, adding some details. It says, when his own people heard of this, that's an idiom for his family, they went out to take custody of him, for they were saying, he's lost his senses, his family members uh, have shown up and they want to get him out of there. They want to seize him, take custody. just means to, to grab him almost by force, just get him out of there. His brothers are there. They're ready to take Jesus home to Nazareth, even by force, if they must. So why? Why would, why would they want to do this? Well, to keep Jesus from harming himself. They're trying to get him out of this dangerous spotlight. They think he's lost it and it's probably starting to affect them. So what's behind this? I don't think that they believe Jesus is mad in the sense of like drooling over himself, but I think they believe he's, he's like a religious fanatic. He's, he's crazy. He's just gone too far. It's fine if Jesus wants to try being a rabbi, but just, it's just gone too far. He's living on the road. He has no home, no possessions, no money. He's gathered around himself this ragtag group of fishermen and tax collectors. He's got prostitutes around him. Meanwhile, thousands of people seek him like he's a circus attraction, and the crowd can be dangerous. One time, Jesus was almost trampled. He's neglecting sleep and meals. This lifestyle is going to be the death of him. It's just just too much, too radical, too zealous. And I believe the family has to be even more concerned by Jesus making enemies with the religious establishment. I mean, he's barking up the wrong trees. He's making enemies out of powerful people in their culture. It's like, what if you had a brother who is very publicly slandering and calling out members of the mob? Just right out there in public, just exposing their dirty laundry. get a little scared for him and maybe even for yourself. That's pretty much what's going on. The Pharisees already launched a formal investigation into Jesus, sending delegates from Jerusalem to check him out. They've already started a smear campaign They've resolved to destroy him. Some of this news is probably getting back to his family members. This is just getting out of hand. Jesus is going to get himself killed. I think that's what's going on here. Verse 47. They want to get him. Verse 47. Someone said to him, Behold, your mother, your brothers are standing outside seeking to speak to you. Yet Mark lets us know they, they want to get him out of there. The family shows up, but this crowd is spilling out the door. So there's no way they're getting inside. They're forced to play like a game of telephone to relay a message to Jesus somewhere inside the house. Now we're, we have here Mary, the mother of the Lord. We were introduced to her back in chapter 1. I should say scripture is very clear that Mary did not think her son was crazy. The angel revealed to her that her child would be the son of God. She believed. I'm sure she's a little confused by how this whole messianic thing is playing out what's the picture here, but she did believe in her son. The same could not be said for Christ's brothers. Joseph is out of the picture. We never hear of him again. Most believe that means he probably died somewhere along the way, but his brothers and sisters are still around. For example, Mark 6, verse 3, people in his hometown say of him, is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon, Are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Christ had sisters. They're probably married off at this point. We never really hear of them. He had many brothers. We encounter them a few times. But every time we encounter them, it's very clear they do not believe in him, which is pretty stunning. John 7 5 says that even his brothers were not believing in him. Some wonder, like, how could this be? How could they not recognize their brother as the divine Messiah? But to me, it actually makes perfect sense. It's one of those small details showing the authenticity of the Scriptures. If you're making this story up, you're not going to say that his brothers didn't believe in him. But look, growing up, Jesus performed no miracles. So it's not like every meal he's turning water into wine like growing up. But Jesus was sinless, which means his actions and his reactions toward his brothers were always righteous. He was always righteous. They, They were not. Don't you think that would have irritated them to no end? Jesus never got in trouble, never disobeyed, never did anything wrong. They did. And so I bet that incited them. I I bet growing up they viewed him as as too righteous, a zealot, a fanatic. Much like the brothers of Joseph, they're not going to bow the knee to their brother. And so I, I wouldn't be surprised if they hated him growing up, just as darkness hates the light. Nevertheless, here we are, his family is outside the house, they're calling for him to come outside, they're looking to take him away, and when the crowd relays this message to Jesus, I'm sure they all expect Jesus to respond. Family first, your family's calling, okay, he's got to get up and go, but that's not what happens, which makes the response all the more unexpected. Verse 48, but Jesus answered the one who was telling him and said, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, Behold, my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father who is in heaven, he is my brother and sister and mother. This really is a shocking statement. Jesus turns down his whole family, but by his response, he makes his priorities known. He used this as an occasion to reveal that his spiritual brothers, his spiritual family, is actually closer to him than his physical family. He's saying he has closer ties with his spiritual family than his physical family. His mother and brothers thought they had a special claim on Jesus. I mean, they're related. But actually, he says, no, his disciples have a special claim on him. He's their Lord. This is quite a radical position. Christ asks, Who is my mother? Who are my brothers? And he stretches out his hands, a hand, and points to his disciples. These are my mothers, my mother, brothers, sisters. The point is, these. this is my true family. He's teaching now on the true family of God. And, and who is it? Who is in the family of God? Verse 50 is uh, pretty special. It's Starts with whoever. Whoever, first, want you to note how inclusive the family of God is. Meaning, it is open to anyone. There's no restrictions on a person's background. We learn all, all colors are accepted, black and white. All ages are accepted, old, young, in between. Both genders are accepted, male and female. All social statuses, rich, poor, slave, free, educated or not. Even all nationalities, Jew, Gentile, anyone, whoever can be part of God's family. It's, it's all inclusive in a radical sense to the Jews, uh, how inclusive God's family can be. But at the same time, it's terribly exclusive because you see in verse 50, it has this one special requirement. Whoever does the will of my Father who is in heaven, he is my brother and sister and mother. And this is the real kicker, how God identifies his family members, those who do the will of God. You're probably wondering, is this, is this Jesus teaching salvation by works? No. Because ultimately, what is the will of God? The ultimate will of God, John 6:40, And Christ said, this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life. We know we're not saved by obedience or works. And don't confuse doing the will of God with works. God's ultimate will is that we would behold his son, believe in him, follow him, become his disciples. That is the path to salvation. Salvation is not of works, but by faith. Now, that being said, we also know that the one who is a true disciple and he follows Jesus will obey. They will produce good works. And those resulting works will make very clear whether or not a person belongs to God's family. At the time, Jesus knew that the crowds were clamoring for him. Many people said they believed in him, but he knew they were phonies. They're going to leave him. Talk is cheap. So, so who is the true disciple? Who's going to deny self and follow him? Who's going to prove themselves a doer of the word and not merely a hearer of the word who delude themselves? James 1.22. Who is going to bear fruit and so prove to be my disciple? John 15.8. So look, with his family standing outside, his disciples on the inside, in a very picturesque way, he, he answers the question. that Who belongs to Christ? What does it take to be with God? Reform is not enough, and neither is proximity, meaning it's not enough to be near Jesus even related to him. You must actually follow him. You must be his disciple. We know the Jews thought that they were near God, that they knew God, largely because of what? Because of proximity, right? They were were descended from Abraham. They're in the right family tree. That's why they kept genealogies, that they could prove that they're in the right family tree. They're in God's family. That's their ticket to heaven, but this is one of the great stumbling blocks for the Jews, just the tearing down of this notion. That no, just, just being a physical descendant of Abraham does not make you right with God. The justification is not by lineage, but by faith. You're not saved by the first birth, but by the second. Just The, the door of personal repentance and faith in Christ is the only way in for anybody. But it's also amazing to think that like, the literal, physical family members of Jesus, like that's not enough. Even that close, that's not enough. I mean you can't get any closer humanly speaking, but, but no, neither his mother or his brothers got automatic passes to heaven because they were in the family of Jesus. Don't confuse Christ's words here with despising his family. He, he loved them. He cared for them. He needed to make clear the way of salvation. It's not by being close to him. It's by being his disciple. You actually have to follow him. As for his brothers, sisters, his mother, they themselves, they're going to stand on their own before God, giving account for their sins. And their only hope, same as everyone else, contrary to the Catholic Church teaches, but they have to recognize Jesus as their Lord, their Savior. They have to become his disciple, even his mother, had to become his disciple by faith if she was to be saved. The door of faith is the only way. There are no exceptions. Now, a quick side note. Thankfully, after the resurrection, his brothers found the door of faith, and they did believe in him. We see his brothers with the apostles in the upper room after the resurrection. In Acts one fourteen. it says of the apostles, these all with one mind were continually devoting themselves to prayer, along with the women, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. Christ's brother James, I guess these are all technical half-brothers, but James would go on to be a pillar of the church, writing the epistle of James. Same thing for Jude, writing the epistle of Jude. And you go read those letters, strikingly, neither James nor Jude once boast about being the brother of Jesus, as if that gave them special favor. Listen to how they both open their epistles the same way. James, a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jude, a slave of Jesus Christ and brother of James. So we identified James as his brother, Christ as his master. Because he realized it's, it's actually the only way in. They realized in time that to be in God's family, even being related to Jesus is not enough. He must be your master. You must bow to him as Lord. And what a lesson for us, because this still holds true. It's not enough to be near Jesus, to be around the things of the Lord, to be in a Christian family. You have to actually follow him. Just think for the youths in the room, do you have Christian parents? Have you been raised in the faith? That's good. But realize the faith of your parents does nothing to save you. As we say, say often, God does not have grandchildren, he only has children, meaning the faith of your parents does nothing to reconcile you before God. They can lead you right up to the door of faith, but you're going to stand or fall on your own. You must enter that door of faith on your own, where you come to see Jesus not just as the Lord and Savior, but my Lord, my Savior. And I'd urge you to do that even today. And for all of us, it's also not enough just to be in church, don't think just because you attend this church or any church that you're right with God. You don't enter God's family just by being around his family members, as if you can just, if you hang out long enough, he'll you'll sneak in. He'll let you in. You can blend in. You can go through the motions. You can sing all the songs. You can fool all of us. But proximity to the things of the Lord is not enough. It's very sad, but the Lord Jesus himself, leads us to believe that not a few, but many people who warmed pews for decades will be cast out of the kingdom of heaven, Matthew 7, 21 through 23, because he never knew them, because they never followed him. But we've seen this morning two very different pictures of the way of the Lord stated negatively, reform is not enough, proximity is not enough. But, but don't miss the big picture when we put them together, like What is enough? Well, faith in Christ is enough. You just must be his disciple. Discipleship is so simple. You just have to look upon Christ as Lord and Savior, believe in him, and actually follow him as if he really is Lord and Savior. Just, that's it. It's, it's so simple. But it's also so radical. In one sense, it's impossible because you must be born again. We can't do that to ourselves. But God promises to provide that power as we humble self and look upon him. We know that this Jesus, he was radical first. He literally picked up his cross and died on it to pay for our sins, to forgive us, to put away the enmity, to draw draw us to himself. He calls us to to do the same, to pick up our crosses, to follow him, denying self. That is the way of the Lord. Like we know, not a single one of us is radical enough, or faithful enough, or obedient enough. None of us are perfect disciples. Thankfully, the way of the Lord is not based on our performance. But you do want to be found a true disciple, known by one who, who loves this Lord, who does follow him by repentance and faith, who seeks him. Just put all of your confidence, not in the flesh and self, but in this Lord. You gain Christ by faith. You keep him by faith. Now follow him by faith, but follow him. It is the only way of the Lord. I'll leave you with Philippians 3, 12 through 14, a a cherished passage where Paul himself imperfectly reveals how he seeks to follow this Christ as his only hope. Just listen to Philippians 3, 12 through 14. He says, not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. It's all found in Christ. May we likewise just press on in following him by faith. Let's make that our prayer. Our gracious God in heaven, we we praise your name this morning together as your people. Seeking you and seeking you through your son whom you have sent, that we might know you and find you. Apart from you, we would be just as blind. Whether our lives looked moral and upright or not, we would be lost. And we thank you for exposing the way through your word this morning in these such different pictures and backdrops of, of what it means to find you, how to find you. It's not enough to just clean up our act. We know it's the way of man, the way of all religions is to clean the outside of the cup, to just deal with the externals. You care about that, but only from the heart. It's not enough to be around you, the things of you, the, the songs that even reading the Bible, going to church, all these forms of worship you say matter, but only first and foremost when we, when we are made new. That's a work you must do. We plead with you to do it with any here this morning who do not know you, but, but by faith you promise your power flows. We look upon you, we recharge, re-energize we our faith and devotion in this Christ. How can we thereafter even put confidence in, in the flesh, in ourselves, to, to even keep following him, to stay on the path, to grow, No, may we put no confidence in the flesh, but walk by the Spirit you've made to fill us, that we may please you, that we might grow, that we might let others know the way of the Lord with our lips and with our lives. So just recharge, refuel your people this morning in the truth to follow Christ as our Lord each of our days. It's in his name we pray. Amen.